Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on? So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Nicole Helgeson of Ocean Gardener. We talk about a lot. Um, she discusses the importance and threats to coral reefs, uh, the state of the coral restoration projects that she's been working on uh, since COVID started, and then how she gardens, essentially, underwater the exact same way she did and everyone else would on land. It's really incredible hearing her talk about the different types of coral, the six different types, how they work together, how one is better for the other, uh, at this than the other. One will connect them, one will encrust it all over, and one is like the branching type of coral that makes sure it is, you know, coral reefs remain as biodiverse as they are today. Really great episode. I almost guarantee you'll learn something. Um, if at the very least, you'll know how bad I am at poker analogies because I don't play. But I love I love Nicole's positivity. I love her knowledge. I love her. I love when every when anyone has a really specific thing that they enjoy so much and they've made their career. Nicole talks about how she first got started being a coral gardener. Um, and it was on her first dive that she took. And when she was down, she noticed the coral more than anything else and was super fascinated by that. And as a diver myself, I can say, that's not something I've noticed most times, and now I'm going to start to pay more attention, realizing how important these coral are. It was we, we talked about how like 25% of marine life comes from coral reefs, and they only inhabit 1%, and less than that now, maybe a half a percent at this point, of the ocean floor. So incredibly crucial parts of the, um, of the ocean, which is obviously an incredible, incredibly crucial part of the world. So we talk about that. We talk about the Great Barrier Reef and things that people are doing to protect it and really bioengineering that the right type of coral reproduces with the other right type of coral to make sure that, you know, almost genetically modifying them to make sure that they can be resilient to the rising ocean temperatures and ocean acidification that we have seen and will continue to see as a result of climate change. As always... If you like this podcast, please like, rate, review, subscribe, and follow. It means a lot. It helps a lot. And yeah, enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. All right. Well, thanks, Nicole. I really appreciate you joining me today. Uh, yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about your background, how you got started doing what you're doing, uh, and where you are today? Sure, yeah. So um, I'm a coral lover. Some people call me a coral expert um, and a scuba diver, a professional scuba diver. And so I started scuba diving in 2006. And on my very first dive, um, I was taken to a coral reef where there was a coral restoration project that had just started. And I didn't know anything about corals. I mean, I'm from Canada. And but one thing I loved to do in Canada was garden. And I saw this project there and I saw them growing these corals underwater. And I was like, wow, I know what I need to do with my life. You know, <laughs> I need to be doing this. And um, then I became, that was in 2006, my very first dive, right? 
And then I became a diving, uh, diving master, a dive instructor. Um, it took about a couple of years, but I became a, a dive instructor. And then when I took people diving, I was always focusing on telling them about the corals and teaching them about the corals because that's what I was passionate about and what I was interested in. And slowly after years of doing that, I realized, you know, people aren't kind of paying attention to the corals so much. They always come up from the dive and they say things like, wow, do you see this sea turtle and the puffer fish and right. the, the coral reef is so beautiful. And so no one was really putting so much emphasis and attention on, on recognizing the coral species. Um, and so that's kind of what's led me to where I am today, which is, you know, having all these these blog posts and these these organizations that I work with um, to help people see the reef with new eyes. Nice. And I've been diving a, a few times and I am 100% guilty of that as well, especially your first few times, right? You're more concerned of the, you know, the megafauna, I guess you would see the, the, the sharks, the trigger fish, the, the sea turtles. Um, but yeah. arguably, yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's different because, you know, um, if you go down underwater for the very first time, it's an alien world. Right. You're not supposed to be there. Well, you're supposed to be there, but we're not, you know, it's all new to us. So it's totally understandable that people just look at the fish and the turtles because that's what's jumping out at them, right? And so we all we have to kind of program our brain to look at the corals to be able to recognize them. Yeah, exactly. And you know, arguably, save for sharks, it's probably one of the most important things you're looking at and not even noticing it, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, coral reefs are home to over 25% of all uh, marine species. So they provide habitat and they uh, build these complex structures that you know, are home for all these, these fish. So in a sense, they are the background, they are the landscape. But once you're able to recognize the diversity of species, you can really evolve your perception of the underwater landscape and everything kind of gets bigger and you see so much more. And it, it can be really interesting, but it's, it's challenging on your first dives because everything is, everything is new. Right. But for you, that was something that you were looking at immediately. The first thing you noticed was the coral. Well, it was because they had those structures. They had these structures built underwater, um, these frames where they're growing coral fragments. And like I said, in Canada, I was I was working as a gardener, mm -hmm. you know, so I was interested with, wow, you can grow these like corals. It yeah. was so interesting to me. And that's what really captivated me. What um, where was your first dive or your first sets of dives? Uh, it was in Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, and so for coral itself, what, like, what is it exactly, right? I mean, it's not, I know it's enough to know it's not a plant. I think it's a, a series of animals, but beyond that, I don't really know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not a rock and it's not a plant. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's actually a, a colony of animals. Yeah, basically, um, all the coral is, is are, are these tiny polyps, right? And they build this hard skeleton um, for protection. So they can actually retract inside the skeleton. And as they build up those skeletons layer by layer, that is what actually forms the hard coral, the hard, the coral reef. Gotcha. So, so what it is, is just this exoskeleton of for protection. And then these yeah. polyps are able to utilize that hide in if they need to um yeah exactly and, and the kind of thing that where people say well maybe it's a plant so 
what happens is these polyps inside their tissue, they host a tiny photosynthetic marine algae called zooxanthellae. And that algae is able to, um, you know, take the light and photosynthesize, and it produces um, nutrients that the corals need to grow. And it's a symbiotic relationship. So the little algae gets to live inside the coral polyp for protection. And um, it provides energy for the coral and the coral gives some nutrients back to the, to, to the algae as well. So it's a symbiotic relationship and that's what enables the corals to grow so quickly because they get 90% of their energy through this photosynthetic relationship. Gotcha. So it's not too far off thinking that right. coral is uh, our plants because in some aspects they, they utilize plants pretty heavily to, to grow. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's a photosynthetic marine algae. So they have that relationship. Um, if you know what a sea anemone is, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. so in, if you look at a sea anemone, it's surrounded by tentacles and it has a mouth in the middle of mm -hmm. its body. And polyps are the same thing. So they can actually feed, they can actually eat um, little zooplankton or anything that they find in the water and they get a small percentage of their energy um, from that, but then 90% of that, the majority of the energy comes from that photosynthetic relationship. So that's why they can, well, that's why, first of all, we find them in the tropical, in the tropical uh, oceans, mm. closest to the sun. We find them in the areas of the ocean, usually between zero and 40 meters, um, because they need the sunlight to survive. Gotcha. So what, um, what types of species rely on the presence of coral? Because I know... You know, obviously, whenever I went diving, coral reefs were a big attraction because there were so many species either being born there or feeding there or just kind of habitating around that area. It, it really is the foundation of the, of the marine environment. Um, they say that over 25% of all marine species live on the coral reef, um, but it's really a trickle-down effect. I mean, even sharks, if you think about it, they rely on smaller fish mm -hmm. as their food. And those smaller fish hide in the reef. So the healthier the reef is, the healthier the, the ecosystem is. And then all the species rely on that, um, you know, the trickle down effect. So, I mean, the, I think a lot of species, <laughs> fish, sharks, turtles, all of them. I mean, when we were, you know, anytime we went to go see like an octopus, like they weren't just hanging out. Uh, they were at least in some rocks, if not in the rocks were generally around some coral in some capacity. Mm -hmm. So. Um, how many different types of species of coral? I, I read somewhere that it was denser or might've had more, uh, you know, biodiversity than the Amazon rainforest or, or rivaling it at least. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, when they say that, I think it's because it's so concentrated all in one area, Okay. you know, you go to a place, um, like Indonesia, it's where they call the coral triangle. I think it's Indonesia, Philippines, it goes over to Papua New Guinea. Um, that's kind of the coral triangle region. Hmm. And you have hundreds of species of hard coral. I think 650 or something, something even more maybe of hard coral and thousands of species of soft coral. Um, and then on top of that, I, I don't even know how many thousands of species of fish and, and marine life there is. And they're all concentrated in that, in that area from zero to 40 meters. Um, below the 40 meters, you can have some low light photosynthetic corals. And as you go deeper, you can actually have a uh, non-photosynthetic corals. You know, they've found them in the bottom, all the way in the Marianas Trench, you know, at the deepest part of the ocean, you can still have 
non-photosynthetic corals and they provide habitat for fish. So it's really like when they say it's like the Amazon, you know, it is, it's, it's all this biodiversity concentrated in the, this really small area because they say that the coral reefs, the photosynthetic coral reefs cover, I think less than 1% of the ocean. And so you have all that life just in that one little strip of land, underwater land. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's wild to, that's definitely wild to think about. Um, what, so, so, sorry, but other than the obvious, like what is the difference between hard coral and soft coral? Is there a significant difference in what they're, they're made of? Right, yeah, so... Um, if we look at it like um, from the science um, background, you know, hard corals and soft corals are separated into two classes. So hard corals are in the class Hexacorallia and soft corals are in the class Octocorallia. And uh, what that means is if you actually look at the polyps, um, the polyps of the soft coral will always have eight tentacles. Wow. Wow. And the polyps of the hard corals will always be in multiples of six. Huh. And so the difference is the hard corals, so that's like kind of where they diverge, right? And so the hard corals are able to build a hard calcium carbonate skeleton for protection. Whereas soft corals, um, they are built with a jelly-like mesoglia and they have hard kind of calcium carbonate um, sclerites that kind of make them more rigid. But soft corals will kind of, um, they can kind of inflate their body a little bit with water and then those little sclerites kind of give them the structure. And um, that's kind of the, the biggest difference. Wow. Do you know the, uh, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but do you know the breakdown of hard versus soft, like percentage wise? Um, I think like in Indonesia, there might be, I think, I think 650 is the, is about the ballpark of how many hard corals there are. And I think two or three thousand soft corals i wow. really i'm 100 percent sure it's a it's a more challenging to identify the soft corals because it comes down to um investigating those tiny sclerites those tiny little bones that are inside the soft corals and looking at minute differences you know some are more feathered or or more sharp so I don't like really teasing out the soft corals is a, is a bit more challenging and I'm still working on yeah. <laughs> hundreds of hard corals. So I know that there's more, a lot more soft corals than, than hard corals. But. Gotcha. Interesting. I had no idea. I mean, I knew there was a difference of hard and soft, but beyond that, I didn't know. I just, I didn't know any of the, about the, you know, the structure or how they were created. Yeah, and the, the biggest difference is that the, the hard corals are the ones that people talk about the most okay. um, because they, they build that um, hard calcium carbonate skeleton, especially those branching corals are the ones that people kind of focus in on the most because they are able to build that complex three-dimensional structure that provides the habitat for all the marine life. Gotcha. So when people are saying coral, they're talking about hard coral because that's what creates that habitat for the most part. Yeah, I think that soft corals catch people's attentions because they're usually brightly colored. They move around a lot. You know, there's big sea fans. Um, so they're equally as important. Um, but especially when we're, we're talking about things like coral bleaching, that mostly affects the, the hard corals. And, you know, that's the biggest one that provides that complex habitat that's so important to the marine environment. Gotcha. Um... What about growth? I would imagine soft corals might grow faster, but I just learned about them, so I have no idea. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, every everyone's unique. So okay, okay. There are some type of soft corals, like, uh, you know, the, the pulsing Xenia corals, maybe people see a lot, um, that just, uh, just kind of take over. They can just take over a spot that's been damaged, or some of the leather corals can grow pretty quickly. Um, every coral's different, you know, just like people. Okay. <laughs> so, and what does it range from, like, the, the, the fastest growing to the slowest? I know... Some coral reefs have been around for tens of thousands of years, if not longer, right? Most people are surprised when they hear how fast some corals can grow. Um, there are some coral, some, um, some hard corals that can grow a few millimeters per month, you know, a few wow. centimeters, a couple centimeters per year. Um, and then other ones that take, you know, that could maybe grow 10 centimeters in a year and other ones that would grow less than a centimeter in a year. Um, so it just depends. Um, one way to kind of investigate that is a, a, if you see if you're diving and you see a, a plating coral for example if they're really thin if the plate is really thin that might be a coral that's growing faster than say something that has a really dense thick skeleton gotcha okay that makes like sense something you know like the brain coral is really kind of hefty right um that might not put on as much um diameter yeah over yeah. the year as, as, as really uh, thin plating coral. Right. So what, yeah. So I guess those brain corals have to continuously build upon themselves, uh, in a sphere, whereas plating is just the flat plate like style. And it's much more obvious to see them grow and they grow that much faster. Mm -hmm. You have some plates that are thick as well. So it's okay. really not, a, it's really not a general, oh, plates grow faster than brains, but, um, there's, you know, it, it, I think that's one way to kind of start being a detective, you know, a coral detective, if you want to kind of understand them, like if you have some branches that are thicker or thinner, you know, it's going to be easier to grow if it's a thinner skeleton. Is there any particular, whether it's hard or soft type of core that's exceptionally rare or maybe uh, increasingly rare uh, or one that might benefit the ecosystem better? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, I think most people would agree that the branching corals are, are, are really important because that they create those complex networks. Um, but, you know, like everything, it's so complex, right? It's such, it's an ecosystem. So mm -hmm. one cannot survive without the other. Um, so every, what's kind of interesting about corals is they're, they're, they're pretty regional. Um, so you can have some corals that are kind of endemic to one area, you know, you only find them in Raja Ampat or you mm -hmm. only find them on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and so they might be rare locally, yes. but overall in general, like what we say is there's kind of six growth forms of coral. There's branching, plating, there's the meandering, which makes the brains. There's massive, which forms kind of big, chunky um, boulders um, and then there's the, the solitary the solitary corals hmm. um, and so if we like wait branching plating meandering encrusting yeah that's the last one encrusting crusting encrusting oh encrusting e yeah what, what what is that it's just like you it's just like it sounds they, they just like form a crust oh okay right so they can it, it can be it, that can be really important for fusing rocks together right so if you have kind of a disturbed habitat, like the encrusting corals can fuse the rocks together. Um, and then the, the brain coral, the, the massive corals can kind of help to stabilize that area. And then the branching corals, which are more delicate, can come in afterwards. Wow. Wow. 
Right. And so that's kind of some of the work that we're doing um, in coral restoration is going, you know, looking at that whole ecosystem of corals and kind of looking at an area that's been disturbed and saying, well, first of all, what happened here? Why did this happen? And then what are the steps that we need to do to bring it back? And that's one of the, the exercises we might do is, okay, well, we need to bring these boulder corals back to stabilize the sediments and then encrusting corals, hold it all together. And then only then we can start to introduce some of those more delicate branching corals, which will bring back the fish. Wow, that is fascinating. And I can see how that's a lot like gardening. I can see how that's mm-hmm. a lot like, um, you know, uh, whatever the opposite of monocropping is. But just having, okay, well, they, you know, these species rely on this, uh, or they work better with this, or they can, you know, they soften the soil a little bit for right. a tomato, I guess. Right. And so that's something that um, a lot of new coral scientists and reef scientists are looking at is, uh, you know, how to use all these different species and how they all work together and how all the growth forms work together. And um, it's not just a one size fits all solution. And that's really what I find interesting with all of this uh, coral restoration is, is really digging into, okay, we have this one habitat in this place. um, And this is the reasons why it's been deteriorating. Uh, these were the species that were there and then this is the solutions that we can use to help restore that area and it's really unique you know it's it's it's, you know what works here what works a mile down the beach it's going to be completely different wow so what like how do how do coral reefs differ for natural corals and or excuse me like um the artificial reefs that you're creating, how do they differ? What is that process? Like, how do you encourage one to grow one particular coral after you've identified what you need in what order? Like, how, how does that even begin to start? Right, I can <laughs> see. I can see you're trying to dig in now, you know? Yeah, uh, for sure. For sure. I mean, again, it's it's all, it's always different. Um, but we try to, I mean, we don't want to make an artificial reef you know Mm -hmm. we want to try to give the habitat kind of what it needs to thrive again and so for example um i know that uh you know the project one of the projects that i work with in indonesia called ocean gardener um, we work at a few different locations around the island of bali um and each habitat might have its own reason why it's degraded you know in the south it's a highly uh tourism there's lots of tourism right so maybe some of the reefs are degraded because of pollution Um, and in the north you know maybe it's degraded because of runoff or something you know Um, and so in those habitats that's what the first thing is that we're going to assess is why are the reefs gone right right and we assess well what were the corals here before and you can usually do that by looking at, you know, even if there's only 2% of the corals left, well, you can identify the species. Um, You can look at the skeletons of the corals that are left. Um, And you just want to work with that. Like you just want to work with the environment. So in in the north of Bali, one of the projects we're doing there, um, we've set up nurseries, you know, we've set up coral nurseries where we try to um, regrow some of the corals that were there. And then just actually taking those corals and just putting them back on the dead skeletons yeah. and just 
you know, this is where that coral was growing before. So wow. hopefully it will grow there again. Um, at the same time, you know, working with the communities to try to to see why they, they were, you know, why the runoff was coming in the water, seeing how can we help fix that problem? You know, what can we do with the community to help them? What do they need to, to, to help them, to involve them with the project? So it's a, it's a really, it goes beyond just planting a coral. Yeah, I talk with a lot of people and a lot of different nonprofits. And the biggest thing is when people actually include the local communities, right? Because otherwise, you know, what is in it for if people aren't going to help or if they don't see the ability to get something out of it, whether it's okay. just more beautiful coral or more tourists or what have you, then there's really no incentivization. Yeah, we like to work a lot with fishermen. Um, so we work with fishermen and uh, they get it, you know, they see that where there's more coral, they get more fish. Right. Absolutely. And so they, they're, they're super happy to get involved. You know, they're always so interested, especially the, their, their kids. But you, you always have to find that one champion. I'm sure it's the same with any other NGO project. You know, they find one person that's a champion for this project, uh, someone who's a leader in the community. Um, so once you're able to do that, and, and, and that's why we only work in a few locations, because we really want to have this long-term relationship and partnerships to see the projects succeed. Yeah, that makes sense. Like they always say, the Peace Corps you know, you want to have that handoff. You want to make sure you have that consistent track right. record in that area. Right. Um, We're just here to help facilitate with the knowledge and to give them the tools that they need. Is it primarily, you mentioned you mentioned Indonesia. Do you know if there's organizations doing similar things in those other parts of the triangle, whether it's Papua New Guinea or uh, the Philippines? For sure. You know, when I started this journey in 2006, I was like, I'm going to do this. This is so amazing, right? And I got super <laughs> lucky because... That the project that I saw there in the Dominican Republic, it is one of the oldest projects in the Caribbean, you know, to start coral restoration. They were kind of ahead of the curve. Um, and now you see hundreds of organizations popping up with very you know, amazing scientists and people, people in the community who are super motivated and passionate about saving corals. And it happens a lot around dive centers and, you know, dive masters that are working in, in that um, environment they just want to get involved and they just want to help so luckily we are seeing projects all over uh, all over the world in these tropical places um, where people want to save and protect corals which is really nice yeah absolutely um, do you know if there's I mean I'm sure there are but is there anything going on to a, a large scale with the obviously the Great Barrier Reef the biggest mm -hmm. coral reef in the world yeah I mean they're super connected there I, I think they have the james cook university they have the c sims project i know they're doing a lot with um, working with the corals in the lab and trying to focus on spawning corals and see how they can use that for restoration and there's there's definitely a ton of stuff going on there um, and a lot of really um, passionate scientists working on, on on it there which is nice to see i yeah. would love to go I still haven't been to the Great Barrier Reef. It was definitely on my list of things to do. Yeah. But uh, we'll get there, and hopefully I'll get to meet some of those people working on those projects. Yeah. Um, can you see Can you see measurable results in the amount of time that you've been doing this? Um, are you able to, to, to see your impact on the, on the areas in which you're working? Of course, yeah. You know, there's one project in particular that I've been involved with. Um, it's in northern Sulawesi, which is um, the island in the north of, of Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And I work with a, a hotel called uh, Murex Dive Resorts. 
and we have a project on an island called Banka Island. And um, I think we started the project almost uh, 16 months ago, and I just saw an update. They just posted a, a video update a couple weeks ago showing the nurseries that we installed, and that you're like, wow, they need a haircut. You know? <laughs> the corals are out of control. That's I, great. I, it's so great because I was able to work with the owners there and train their staff and, and train their family and, and really inspire them about the corals. And now they've really taken on the project and they've even started the, their own. Uh, there's a little reef that they're restoring in the back and you can see wow. the result. You, know, you can see how much the corals have grown and it's, it's really incredible. <laughs> and and we, when we set up the nurseries there, um, we had that long-term vision in mind. So we knew, hey, this rack, this nursery rack, you're going to need to give it a haircut in six months. Um, and that one, you can wait a couple of years before you're really going to need to take those corals. But that's what we try to do. We try to set up these nursery racks where um, a, quart, a third of it is a mother colonies and the two thirds of it is smaller fragments so that we can actually continually harvest coral fragments from the mother colony, create the smaller fragments and then after a six month cycle or however long those corals need to grow those fragments can re be replanted and new fragments can be harvested from the mother colonies wow okay so how are you harvesting first like <laughs> i gotta know what a haircut is i love the fact that that yeah. coral is just like the rest of us during covid we all need haircuts and uh but then like how are you even doing that 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 harvesting like how are you taking those fragments Right, so it comes back to the, what we were talking about right in the beginning, which is that corals um, are a, they, they're able to reproduce asexually. So if you think of a, of a branch of coral and it's covered in all these little polyps, um, if you break that branch at any, you know, any place, if you break it off with 10 polyps on it, that branch will continue to grow. Wow. So if you think of a mother colony, let's say um, it's about the size of, of a softball, you know, and maybe it has 10 branches on it, right? Mm -hmm. We're safely able to harvest, let's say three of those branches or four of those branches, and we can um, place them on a smaller disc. The disc is maybe about the size of a, you know, a, a chocolate chip cookie, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so we, we use different techniques, um, you know, cement or super glue or epoxies. Um, it's always kind of a different, different method, but Anyways, we're able to take a branch from the mother colony, put it onto the smaller fragment disc, let that grow. And uh, once it's kind of growing, you're able to replant that. And then we can continue to go to those mother colonies. And, you know, the, the one we took four branches off, well, it still had six branches. So mm -hmm. we're going to harvest two more of those. And it's just this ever, ever continuing cycle. Um, and it's quite sustainable. Um, and we're able to identify in the beginning which corals we want to work with because it comes back to our knowledge of coral identification and understanding the growth forms and understanding the life cycles of these corals. So, okay. And that makes sense. So each part of the coral is both the, you know, we'll say leaves for lack of a better term, but also the, 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 the seed, like each part of that can then germinate or, you know, I guess, um, create some more coral through right yeah. each polyp is able to, to grow into a colony gotcha so um if you think about um what they're doing now in the great barrier reef and kind of the future of coral restoration and what people kind of have hope for in the future is uh, is spawning the corals and using those coral 
polyps, those, those settled coral larvae to grow into the reef. I mean, that's what happens naturally in the corals, mm -hmm. right? If you think about it, when the corals spawn uh, and the, the, the larva metamorphose into one polyp, one polyp is settled onto the reef, that one polyp can turn into the reef. So, you know, at any point, if you harvest or fragment a living coral, I mean, you're already starting with 10 polyps. So, you know, you already got a head start. Gotcha. Wow. That is pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah, because you're right. I mean, you know, I'm kind of putting it together. Uh, what you did when you first started is that that is exactly you're pruning, you're you're replanting. I mean, that is gardening. It's just underwater. You, you know? Right. And I'm very fortunate because um, I, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years, but I, I got to work with um, Ocean Gardener in Bali and they have over 20 years experience um, doing this. Um, they farm corals commercially, actually, for they started farming corals for, for aquariums, right? Gotcha. So that's why they have this deep, profound knowledge of how to grow the corals and which species to work with and which habitats that they, they grow best in, you know? So I kind of joined their team uh, in more of a, you know, ambassador form and, and uh, let's, you know, let me help you. I, I worked with dive centers, right? So mm -hmm. let me help communicate your message to, to the dive centers and to the diving community and 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 let me help share your knowledge of gotcha. the coral and growing the corals and all of that gotcha yeah that kind of liaison between the importance right because like you were saying a coral is oftentimes overlooked maybe even by dive centers but about how or by fishermen or what have you but you know realizing how crucial they are you know, mm -hmm. not a lot of people can do that. So they might need someone like you to kind of bridge that gap. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it works. It's my <laughs> passion too. So, it, you know, it worked out. Uh, right. I have a background though. I know you found me through my blog. So I, I, you know, I've written a bunch of articles online. I write for different magazines in the scuba diving industry. So that's my kind of background is communicating and, yeah. and talking to people about corals. Um, and so it's, it's nice to get to work with scientists and, you know, people in the industry, business industry who, who have this history and this knowledge of growing corals and, and they have that, you know, and I'm able to help communicate that. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about the threats. Like you mentioned, okay, so you're working individually in Indonesia. You can kind of isolate this particular area might have threat X while this particular area might have threat Y. What happens when the threat is international, which we probably a lot of people who are listening know, you know, climate change is a big issue when it comes to coral bleaching so what do you how do you combat that and then also like if you can i don't want to use a pun but it's coming to the top of my head like if you can dive into what coral bleaching is um, right because my understanding is that is that involves a little bit of the algae like it's it's as you know everything else you've been mentioning pretty nuanced and complex mm -hmm. you know, um it's interesting because i think a lot of us that work with NGOs or care about the environment, we know climate change is the problem. You know, that's, that's, that, that's the problem. And so it's almost about now, how do we evolve that? How do we evolve that message from, okay, we know climate change is the problem, dig deeper, right? You know, right. what are the other problems? So definitely coral bleaching is, is a huge issue. And that's been in the media over and over because of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and it's a combination of things like it's a combination of the water in the ocean is getting warmer 
and that stresses out the corals. It's um, pollution going into the ocean that compounds and stresses out the corals. You know, it's all of these things. And, and basically what happens in the coral bleaching is, you know, historically coral bleaching has happened and the corals bleach and then they recover. But what's, what we're seeing now is these compounding stressors that are making it worse. And so the, the trigger really is when the water temperature is above, you know, two or three degrees for a sustained period of time, let's say three or four weeks, um, the corals get stressed, you know. And what happens is that photosynthetic algae that's in the polyp right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, it gets like too much light, basically. And it, it finally becomes it, it has to eject itself from the polyp. It's right. like, I can, I can't handle it in here anymore. The polyp can't handle it, it becomes like a, a toxic situation. And the, the coral polyp basically ejects all this um, symbiotic zooxanthellae algae. Um, and that's what causes the corals to become white. Because um, that algae is what gives the corals those dark brown, dark green colors. And then if we remember from the beginning, um, you know, those algaes provide 90% of the energy required for the coral to survive. So once it ejects that algae, the polyps become translucent. You can start to see the skeleton and the coral basically starves. Oh, wow. Okay, sure. It's not able to get food. And, and what can happen is if it only, maybe it's just a, like a slight bleaching, maybe not all the coral bleaches, maybe only part of the coral bleaches, it can recover. It can get that zooxanthellae back. However, if the entire colony ejects that zooxanthellae algae, it, it's now it's starting to starve. And what happens, like you were saying, is, um, is, is, algae other types of algae like harmful algae hair algae bacteria algae come over and they can actually kind of suffocate the coral so they start growing on that white coral the bleached coral and it kind of just kills it off you know that's the that's the end of it all and those are the pictures that we see you know if you google coral bleaching you see the white corals and then you see these kind of corals that are just look like sand right and so they've gone through that process of ejecting the algae getting suffocated with, with, um, harmful algaes and then gone. Wow. Yeah. I knew about the first stage. I didn't know about the second stage and I knew there was some point, there's a point of no return, but there was also a, you know, a relatively significant amount where it was, you know, you could resuscitate them. Um, yeah. So that's, that's the compounding factors, you know, is that, if it only happens once and if the habitat is completely pristine and there's, you know, no other stressors and no other factors. Um, but, you know, this is, you know, down and down the line is that we're overfishing. So a lot of these reefs, you know, in, in, in developing countries, they're, you know, people rely on the fish for food. So a lot of times these reefs get overfished and then you have type of herbivorous fish like parrotfish that actually did, they feed on algae, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you've overfished the reef and you've taken off those fish and then there's pollution and then there's a coral bleaching, well, like now the whole kind of control mechanism, the whole balance is 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 off and mm-hmm. it just leads to that inevitable decline. So uh, actually what stage is, and I guess it's hard to say, but what stage is the Great Barrier Reef in that? Like, is it... Is it gone for good or is it gone 
I think we all have to have optimism, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that there is there there is hope and I think that we shouldn't end end a, a message with it's it's done, you know, it's over. Like I think there's a lot of that I agree. Uh, it leads, it leads, you know? So you're going to get more clicks on an article that says everything is dying, you know, we're screwed. But it's it's not. They, you know, just last week, they found a new coral reef there that, that was as big as the Empire State Building, let's say. You know, they found all these wow. these pinnacle reefs there. They, the Great Barrier Reef is a huge area. You know, there's places that haven't been explored. There are reefs that are still healthy. That's not to say that like they're not in a big trouble, you know, like definitely a lot of corals have died. I don't really know the statistics, but 30 to 50%, I think, you know, it is, is gone. And, and that is really sad, but more than ever, people are interested in the environment. They are trying to do something, you know, they are putting in the effort and there are like so many passionate scientists working on this working with corals in the lab and trying to learn new techniques for coral restoration and trying to understand how we can spawn corals and how we can settle thousands of coral larvae at the same at a single time to be able to kind of reseed the reef so don't lose hope <laughs> all is not lost good uh, i never i refuse to let a, a podcast episode go by without talking about the positives or at least ending on it so i appreciate you beating me to that because you're right yeah. honestly when when people think I, I i could be in the minority here but when i think the game is over i give up right when i'm i'm trying to think of a poker analogy but because i don't play poker i don't know but like <laughs> when when you you know when the the chips are against you you're going to fold your cards um, right. And I don't think that's an, an attitude we should ever have. But particularly right now, I think that's a pretty corrosive attitude to have. Um, right. Even if you let, let it slip in every now and then, you got to you gotta kind of center yourself in that positivity. Yeah. We need to keep our foot on the pedal of our electric cars, let's say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need, keep, we need to keep going and we need to work harder than ever to try to protect these places because it's in our lifetime that we're seeing this. We're seeing, I mean, it, it, it's even before our lifetime. You talk to some coral reef scientists from the Caribbean who dove there in the 70s, who dove there in the 80s, you know, in Florida and Bahamas and the Keys, all these places. And they, you know, that's a tragedy what's happening there. You know, up to 70% of the corals are gone. Yeah. And you think, wow, this is, you know, 50 years. Right. This is, this is, this is our lifetime. So who's going to do something about it? It's going to be us. And we need to stay positive and we need to, we need to imbue this message of, of positivity and optimism because yeah, it can be depressing if you just think, okay, well, what's, what's the point, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of this, one of the lessons that I learned was, um, you know, after university, I worked in Africa and I worked on a, I, I was saving the world, you know, I wanted to save the world. Right. <laughs> And, you know, it, it becomes overwhelming. It becomes overwhelming when you want to do everything and save the entire world and save the entire coral reef. And then I started focusing more on like small scale, like, mm-hmm. well, I'm, I'm going to be able to have an effect on this community, on this reef. And that really helped me with my positivity and my optimism because I said, wow, look, like that project in, in North Sulawesi, I see, the, I see the impact that we've had in, in 16 months, you know? Wow. I've seen the changes that have happened. And, and that, you know, th- that is one of the reefs, um, there's 50 reefs in the world, I think, that, that have uh, optimism for the future, that are, are with climate change, that we haven't really 
a, a downward trend in the past like 10 to 15 years and that that's one of those 50 reefs is in North Sulawesi but it you know it doesn't it, it makes us want to work even harder to protect them and and that's what it's going to is a lot of people in a lot of places doing a lot of good things um, saving little pockets little pockets little pockets and they spill over into bigger areas and sooner or later we will save the entire coral reef hell yeah i love that <laughs> yeah. um that keeps me that keeps me optimistic yeah i mean that's exactly right and that's another thing they hear with a lot of nonprofits as well as you know you want to you want to go in and have this huge impact and a lot of times you can but more often than not, you probably won't be able to have that right away, but you can have this incredibly huge impact on a small area. You have enough people in aggregate doing that. I mean, that that is saving the world right there. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what, so when we're talking climate change, we're talking uh, the oceans warming. So there's obviously right. a threshold in which, you know, coral reefs grow in warm temperature, but not too warm. But... Is there any issues with ocean acidification? Like I know that that is that's a concern as well. Do they does that impact coral? Yeah. So um, if we think about the corals, like they build that hard calcium skeleton for protection, right? Mm -hmm. And so with the ocean ocean acidification, I think it makes it more difficult for them to acquire that calcium, the aragonite calcium carbonate. I'm not a chemist, but I know that right. that's you know, it makes it harder for them to build their, their skeletons. So when you have these compounding, like, again, global issues, like, like climate change, like the biggest issue facing us right now, what do you, how do you ensure that the, the coral that you then save doesn't then just die? Right. I mean, if this is an issue that has been happening for the past 30 years, how do you make right. sure that it doesn't continue to happen year in, year out? Or does it just happen and you have to kind of keep at it? Yeah, that's a, that's a real question. You yeah. know, that's the real challenge, right? Um, and that's why these projects are all long-term. Um, and some of the things that we do to kind of combat that or tackle that question is if we go into an area and we say, okay, we're going to restore the reef, it might, it, it might mean that... Um, we're not going to restore the coral that was there. We're going to maybe restore it with a more resilient coral, you know, maybe where an area that was predominantly those thin plating corals that are more delicate, maybe we're going to start with a more hardy coral to start with, you know, and, and then that's going to withstand. Um, I know that there is um, gene, gene genomic, gen, gen, I don't know, <laughs> well, geneticists, I guess. Oh yeah. That are, that are dissecting the genes of corals and trying to isolate these these uh, wow. DNA areas that kind of are more heat tolerant or more resistant to to bleaching, climate change, um, and on a little bit more of a um, well, not such a sign uh, gene scale. You know, we do that in our nurseries too. Yeah. We have some corals that we that that Ocean Gardener has been growing in their nurseries for nearly twenty years, and they've survived bleachings. If you have a, a, a nursery rack of a hundred coral fragments and 10 of them survive a bleaching event, well, you know, that one is probably has the genetics to withstand more bleaching events and, and it's more heat tolerant. So those are some corals that we want to work with. 
Um, and our goal of our projects is always to get them to a spawning age because you have this problem in coral restoration where, like you were saying before, the monoculture. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get to a monoculture situation where a disease could come through or anything could come through and wipe out your whole crop, right? And so we try to really diversify um, with our corals. And if we are selecting those ones with the, uh, we find maybe they're heat tolerant, we, we try to put them next to one that might not have that gene. And hopefully in the future, they might spawn and make super babies that will save the reef, you know? Wow. But we're, we're just doing that through observation. But I know that there are scientists who are looking at that and, and that's, a, that's a real thing, you know? Wow. I love it when in the course of a podcast, so in less than an hour, I can learn about so much and so many different career paths and, and, and passions and things that people are doing that I thought I was, you know, somewhere between educated and a novice in, um, but that is, that is definitely fascinating too, but it makes sense, right? I mean, you're having, we're, we have to learn resilience both in land, on land and, and in the sea as well, with, when faced with a, such an international threat such as climate change. And, you know, like you said, we're always learning. I'm even learning every day, you know, Twitter, I'm on Twitter or, or other social media. And you just see these papers and these, these advancements of all these scientists that are all working on the problem. And then that's what makes me inspired. And to know that I'm passionate about this, but I'm passionate about sharing this message and talking about it and teaching people that might not, know much about corals see the reef with new eyes and to help them evolve their perception of the underwater landscape but there's so many people in this field that are passionate about you know everything you know that that get to know that there's smart people working on the problem absolutely that's what i like to think is is we we're good at ingenuity i would say like that's the one thing we can do is create and figure out ways of getting into and out of situations um, and I'm hoping we've got enough smart people, yourself included, working on uh, one of the most uh, pressing issues, but potentially, um, you know, underappreciated as an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's good to hear your perspective because I'm so in it that sometimes uh, we don't, I, I love to talk to people that kind of like have maybe very limited knowledge about it or only been snorkeling or only just, you know, love the ocean, but no, no about it so it's interesting to talk to everyone about this subject yeah and beyond like the diving i've done a few years ago i haven't gone back so but i do know uh through the you know few times i've done it like there have been the people who have gone back year and year or have actually worked in that area and stayed in that area can say hey we have seen this change or i think the way i got uh, found out about you was you mentioned malapasqua in one of your blog articles and when i was in the philippines some of the diving was incredible. A lot of it was rubble uh, because of overfishing, because of dynamite fishing, which was an issue I thought, I really didn't think it was a thing, fishing with dynamite, but it truly yeah. was. Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the list of threats to corals goes on, especially, you know, even there, I think uh, their problem was also the hurricane. I think, they, you know, there's natural disasters that can affect corals too, right? right but those yeah. are increasingly prevalent. Um, but yeah, dynamite fishing is a big thing. And it's just so sad because a lot of time, but I don't think the fishermen really realize, you know, what they're, the damage they're causing. And, and if it's in their own backyard, I mean, it's only a detriment to themselves is that they're destroying the, the reef. And uh, it's that complex habitat that they're losing. And once the, that kind of habitat is destroyed, 
it's really difficult to bring it back because once you have that unconsolidated sediment, you know, this kind of rubbles, rubble area, like nothing can stick, you know, nothing, right. nothing can hold on. And it's exposed to the currents. It's more exposed to storms. And, and it's, it's, it's sadly a recurring theme you hear from diving instructors and dive centers is, you know, we've seen it decline. We've seen the decline. Yeah, which is so scary to think, especially when there's less than one percent of the ocean surface, and it requires you know twenty five percent of species rely on it, or at least come from coral reefs. And that's obviously closest to the places where people live. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always close to the shore. It's where people fish. It's the area that people use the most. So education is really important. Um, that's why we like to work with communities because in the end, uh, you know, I am currently living in Canada. Uh, I don't live on, in Indonesia, but the, the people who live there, you know, live there and they rely on that environment. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's for them, it's for everyone who relies on, on coral reefs for fish, for their, for their livelihood um, that we want to try to protect these habitats. But it sounds like you have a few people or at least organizations checking on these reefs, making sure they're intact. I mean, you're getting updates. Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, definitely like. When we work in, what we do with Ocean Gardener is we partner with the dive centers or hotels um, that are established in the community that, you know, have, that want to work with us. um, And they're kind of now the champions of that project. And we're able to help them. We go there and uh, myself and I have a partner, the other partner we have in in Ocean Gardener, his his name is Vincent Chalias. um, And he's the real guru, the real coral (laughs) expert. Um, and he'll be able to go to one of these locations. He, he lives there. So, um, you know, he's working on the project still now. You know, I'm working a lot on the outreach and the marketing and, and those things. But, um, you know, he will be able to go to a location, identify a nurse a spot to put a nursery, a spot to place the coral fragments, which habitat, you know, what species. Um, and so we provide that ongoing support with these hotels. Um, and, you know, updates, how's your nursery doing? What do you need? What do you need to succeed? Um, and, but then they're maintaining the projects. They're the champions of those projects. Um, and that's how we have long-term success is that they're on site all the time. You know, uh, like little, they take time. You know, you have to go out every week and maintain them. You have to take care of them. So it's a daily thing. It's a weekly thing, you know? Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I, I mean, I could see how that's in everyone's best interest, but especially for dive schools or, or hotels, I could see how that's in their immediate best interest. Um, right. And then it, what's really interesting. And one part that I was working on is how do we create a, a course or how do we create some sort of, um, information for the guests who are coming to these hotels? How can they get involved? You know, people want to get involved, right? So how can I facilitate? How can I help train your dive masters so that they can communicate these messages to the guests and that the guests can go and, and help clean the, the coral fragments or help fragment some corals or even go help replant some corals because it's really so beneficial when they get involved in that way. And so it's, it's, it's a full circle process. Um, it's a way for, um, you know, the, the hotels to restore their house reef you know, right. and get the best involved. Wow. Genius. I love it. Um, what well, you know, how is Ocean Gardener supported and how can someone, if they wanted to, how can someone help you guys? 
Right, yeah. I mean, we have uh, options on the website, oceangardener.org, um, where you can adopt a coral uh, and it will be replanted on the reef. Uh, we, you can adopt a whole uh, nursery frame, if you like, um, with a whole bunch of corals on it. Um, if you're a larger organization, you can even pledge to restore 100 square meters of reef. Um, so we really have options all levels, um, you know, hundreds of hundreds of square meters if you want. Um, <laughs> so we want everyone to be involved with it in, in whichever way they can, um, from donating a single coral to really large uh, donations that will really restore an entire area of reef. Perfect. Well, Nicole, I want to thank you so much for your time and your positivity. Like I said, like, you know, sometimes sometimes it's hard to steer yourself into a positive direction uh, when you're so embedded in something. Um, if you can see, you know, detrimental things happening, or if you're just following the news at any point in the past nine months, like it's, it's hard to, it's hard to stay positive. So I appreciate you, uh, you know, keeping us on that track. Yeah. We have no other option. If you do, you know, if you're going to linger in the negativity, then pack your bags and go home. We've got no need for you. Uh, you (laughs) That's exactly how I feel. So I appreciate you saying that. We can't give up. Thanks for joining If you like that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog, don'tforgetyourboots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.